Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Let me just do a little intro while this thing is loading up, okay? Uh, We have been studying the book of Jude for the last, what, seven weeks now? Seven weeks? And I'll be honest with you guys, when we started out in Jude, uh, it's literally one of the shortest books in the Bible, right? I mean, it doesn't even have chapters. It's one chapter. And now we're in the seventh week. The book of Jude, uh, known very well as... uh, by many scholars, as the Acts of the Apostates, right? We have the Acts of the Apostles, well-known, the first church, the first church era, the birthing of who we are today uh, happened uh, just after the Gospels. You could almost call it a fifth gospel, almost. But uh, we, we commonly, commonly, this text of Jude has been referred to as Acts of the Apostates because as Jude was writing a letter to the end-time church, which was a church of the day as well. Keep in mind, everything is uh, dual in meaning a lot of times when we study the Word of God, but especially in the prophecies he speaks of. He's writing to the end-time church, and he's hoping just to talk about the joy of our common salvation that we have, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit hits the brakes and says, you've got to warn them. You've got to warn them. So we here at Life Story Church tend to believe that we are that end-time church. So if that is indeed true, we should probably pay attention to what Jude is talking about, right? In this study, we've also come to realize that Jude speaks a lot in illusionary terms. Essentially, what that means is that he references things, he gives examples of different things that he assumes that you, the end-time church, will be aware of and know, But as we've been studying, I think we've come to realize that we don't really know too much about a lot of the things that he is referencing. And that uh, is kind of scary to speak that of the church today and the end time church. So in any case, that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to pick up today where we left last week. So if you don't have your Bibles open to Jude yet, go ahead and open to Jude. And last week as we closed, we read through verses 12 and 13 briefly, but we, weren't, we didn't have time to give them the uh, justice that they deserve. So we're going to begin with verses 12 and 13. Shall we read together, church? All right, amen. He said, of these people who have crept in, These unbelievers who have sneakily crept in, basically, among you, these godless people that are in the church around us today, he said, these are spots in your love feast. In other words, a love feast is like when we have our gather at the tables. When we were meeting at the middle school, you remember, at the first Sunday of every month, we'd have a big potluck and we'd call it gather at the table, right? And just a great time of fellowship. The first church did this as well, all the time. They broke bread all the time together uh, throughout the scripture, didn't they? Jesus, almost every time he was teaching, he was eating, right? (laughs) He had a healthy appetite, I guess. Anyway, at these gather at the tables, these love feasts, they are blemishes. They're spots on your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, they're serving only themselves. Now, he gives us some... some, uh, uh, some metaphors again here. They are clouds without water. 
carried away by the winds. They are late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Verse 13, they are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, and they are wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Those are some serious words, huh? Do, Do I have your attention yet? So I want to work through some of these that we didn't have time to work through last week. Can I see our first graphic? These are clouds without water. What in the world is that about? What is a cloud without water? Well, just imagine you're a farmer. You're on the farm, right? It's been dry. Maybe there's a drought even. And here comes this big, beautiful cloud. Praise the Lord, right? Here it comes. This is the answer to my prayers. And it shows up doesn't rain, and just keeps on going, right? Clouds without water are symbolic of deceit and discouragement. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 14, talks about deceit and discouragement, uh, referring to the feeling of thirst. Without water, also interesting, because the Bible in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, talks about the dry, arid places where evil spirits are said to wander. He also said that these empty clouds are blown about by the winds, didn't he? Well, carried about by the winds. Interestingly enough, that word here in the Greek New Testament is pneuma, okay? Same word for spirit. It's the same word for spirit. It's the same word if you were going to say that word in Hebrew, you would say ruach, right? Now, those who know a little bit about Hebrew know that we call the Holy Spirit in the Hebrew tongue the ruach kakadesh, the spirit, So these people, essentially, just through digging into this one metaphor, we can see that they're slaves to Satan, and that's what Paul refers to them them as in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Why? Interestingly enough, a cloud cannot go where it pleases, does it? It does not. It is blown about by the winds. It is carried where the Spirit takes it. So these are clouds without water, deceit, discouragement, influenced by evil spirits, and they're among us. Quite a warning. There are also autumn trees next. Autumn trees. What are are autumn trees? They're fruitless. The leaves fall off, right? The leaves fall off. Just go look at our swimming pool in our house, right? It's full of leaves, right? The leaves fall. There's no fruit growing on these, uh, on these uh, trees at that time. They are fruitless. An interesting com- a contrast to this is that we're living in a time right now that Jesus spoke about. He said that the harvest is ripe for the picking. But these among you, they're fruitless. Interesting of the visuals that, that Jude is painting, or rather the Holy Spirit is painting here. The believers will be gathered into his barn. The believers will be gathered into his barn at some point, won't they? Matthew 13, 30. While others, these others that Jude speaks of, will be rooted out, according to Matthew chapter 13. They're referred to even as transgressors in Proverbs chapter 2. Jude also says that they're twice dead. What in the world does that mean? Isn't it once you die, you die, right? One of my favorite uh, uh, sayings always uh, has been, you know, you can be, you have a decision in life. You can be born once and die twice, or you can be born twice and die once. 
You know what I'm talking about at all here? All right? These be, in other words, these among you, they'll be dead to the fruit of profession, as referenced by 1 Timothy 5, 6. In other words, they profess to be Christians, but their profession is dead. It's meaningless. Okay? But they're dead to possession of salvation as well because they don't have salvation. In other words, these are those that are spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. You understand that if you're not saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you don't have that atoning blood covering your heart, you'll die a mortal death, right? Unless we're, the rapture comes first, right? But if you're not raptured, you're going to die a mortal death, Okay. What happens is that there will be a judgment at the end of the age, and then you die a second death if you don't have the blood of Christ saving your soul. That's some hard-hitting truth there, isn't it? So you can be born once and die twice, or you can be born of the flesh and born of the Holy Spirit as well. And maybe you die in the flesh, but never again. Amen? Or if you get raptured, not at all, huh? I'd be good with that. Raging waves. What do we see in raging waves? Well, throughout the Bible, we see that the sea always speaks of masses of people. Specifically, Isaiah 57, 20, and 21 talk about the sea in the context of people who don't know God. Also interesting is the fact that God has imposed limits on the sea. And, and at the same time, as he's put limits on the sea, the seas of godless people, he says to you, believer, he says to you in Luke 10, verse 19, nothing shall hurt you. Interesting that this verse comes to us uh, in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, because what had just happened, Jesus sent out 70 disciples, right? I'm going to send them two by two, right? You know that song. No? Bad? Terrible. Sunday school is coming back out of the catacombs of my mind. Anyway, he sends out the 70. That's a story, by the way. That'll, that, I could rabbit trail on that one, by the way, but I'll, I'll hold off for today. He sends out the 70. He sends out the 70, and as they go out to preach the gospel, they were amazed that they were able to cast out demons simply in the name of Jesus. They couldn't believe that they would have the power to do such a thing. And Jesus said to them, by no means shall anything hurt you which really is cool. I brought this book because I found a really cool uh, quote on that subject. Origen wrote in AD 230, so we're talking a long time ago, right? One of our early church fathers, he said this. He said, every Christian, even new ones, so if you're new in the faith or you don't feel like you're a strong Christian or maybe you've been struggling lately in your faith, in your walk, or with failure, whatever it is. Listen to this. He said, every Christian, even new ones, has no problem casting out demons. Can you believe that? Do you know why? It's not you who's casting out the demon. They're not afraid of you. It's the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. So it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 10 minutes I'm telling you. So don't be, you know, this content that going through Judas is a warning, right? It might be a little scary, right? Nah, nah. You call it out, understand? All right. 
Interestingly enough as well, he says in Psalm 89, verse 9, that he, still, he rules and stills the sea. Remember in Matthew chapter 8, verse uh, 26, when they were all on the boat and the sea was raging, Jesus woke up and he, what did he do? Calm the sea. An interesting study to get into is who made the storm? Hmm? Perhaps the Lord of the air caused the storm. In any case, Jesus made a good example out of it. One of my favorite scriptures, though, to think about in the context of the sea being a typology of masses of unbelievers is that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, it tells us that there will be no more sea one day. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord one day, church, one day. Can you imagine a world with no unbelievers? Nobody will be able to deny it. So cool. One last thing. When we think of, when we think of within this context, raging waves and the sea and everything, and, and Jude using this as a, an example of what these, these, uh, uh, these infiltrators are like, you know, when, when sailors sail, especially back in the day, they would, they would generally know the territories and their roots, and they would generally know where certain rocks were, right? That they'd steer around them so they wouldn't bottom out and whatnot. There are, the most dangerous thing that they would encounter, though, was a hidden rock, a hidden rock that would cause shipwreck, and that brings to my mind 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, when Paul says, hold on to the faith. Kind of like Jude is saying, contend for the faith, right? Paul is saying, hold on to the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and thereby have shipwrecked their faith. Wandering stars, wandering stars. Next graphic. What is a wandering star? Anybody know? Some of you know, I know. A wandering star... <clears throat> could be referred to in ancient times as a meteor, a falling star. It's illuminated, but guess what? It's flashing brilliantly for a brief time. Then it's burned out. Or planets. They used to refer to planets as well as wandering stars. Why? Because when you look at Mars, what's it look like? A little red star, right? Or Venus or any of the planets that we can see with the naked eye. It looks like a star, but these stars would move and it kind of freak them out. So they just called them wandering stars, right? Wandering stars. So these are wandering stars. Also interesting of, that, of the, the visual that Jude gives, gives us, he says they'll be cast into outer darkness. You know, as uh, modern technology has advanced, we've discovered something called a black hole. Are you guys familiar with the idea? Imagine a black hole that its gravity is so strong it, even, it won't even let light escape. It's gravity, it collapses in on itself, and this is an outer darkness where no light is. It's pretty interesting, pretty interesting. Also, uh, our, our scientists tell us that inside of a black hole, time does not exist. Can you imagine that? We talk about this all the time. Uh, we're in this prison of time right now, really. You know, Jesus uh, sees the whole world like a parade, the end from the beginning all at the same time, right? He knows what tomorrow is. He sees it all. But we're stuck standing on the side, on the sidewalk as the parade goes by. One day we will not be trapped in time, though. <clears throat> How cool is that? 
So anyway, in summary, I wanted to cover those things before we moved on because I wanted to give it the attention I think it deserves. In summary here, next graphic, we have hidden rocks in the church among us, unseen danger. We've got waterless clouds. They're full. These people are full of false promises. We want to identify them, right? He's helping us identify them with these metaphors. False promises, they're autumn trees. In other words, they're, they have a barren profession of faith. They're raging waves like wasted efforts. They're wandering stars because they're aimless in their course. And they're present at our feasts, carried away, fruitless, uprooted, twice dead. Shame, outer darkness is their destiny. Now contrast that. Contrast that and the specific examples that the Holy Spirit led Jude to write. Contrast that with Jesus for a moment. Next graphic. These hidden rocks that shipwreck us versus the rock of our salvation that is Jesus. Amen? Mm. Clouds with no blessing versus he comes on the clouds. Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha? Maranatha. Trees of death versus the trees of life. Restless, troubled waters versus he leads us beside. Somebody say it. Still water. Amen. Wandering stars versus the bright and morning star. Now, one more, one more. Contrast that with true believers, will you? Dangerous rocks versus what are you? Living stone. Waterless clouds versus what are you? Sources of living water. Dead trees versus trees of righteousness. Raging waves versus someone, somebody in here needs this. You are what? Peace like a river, wandering stars versus you will shine as stars forever. Amen? Oh, refresh our soul this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Whew, you feel that? Oh, he's, he's here. You know, he's always here, really. It's just that sometimes it touches something emotional in us, and we feel it more than other times, I think, you know? Mm. You see the craftsmanship of the Holy Spirit here, though? In just these two verses, I like to say the fingerprints of God. You see them throughout the scripture. If you dig, you see them. We're going to see some more of them this morning. So let's read verse 14 and move forward. And Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, of who? Of these spots in the feast, of these, you know, deceivers. He prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Okay, This is where it ties in really, really to the end-time church, being that he's definitely speaking to the end-time church because he's specifically referencing the second coming of Christ. Okay, But before I get to that, the seventh from Adam prophesied. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Why, why in the world is he, would you make that reference, the seventh from Adam? Well, because he's not the only Enoch in the Bible. Did you know that? He's not the only Enoch in the Bible. Uh, just as there are other Jameses in the Bible. There are other uh, Lamechs in the Bible. I'm not the only Chad you've ever met, am I? Right? They did the same thing back then, all right? Uh, the other Enoch was actually the son of Cain. And you can find, I'm not going to read it, but you can find it in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. The son of Cain, he was a bad apple. So I guess 
you could say he didn't fall too far from the tree, right? Uh, but he was, a bad, he was a bad apple. So Jude wants to make that distinction. In any case, in any case, what we're seeing here, church, is pre, a pre-flood prophecy. I want this to sink in. A pre-Noah's flood prophecy about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jude is referencing a prophecy, again, an illusion again, right? He thinks that you should know that when he references this prophecy of Enoch, it's nowhere else in the Bible. How would we know it? That's why he mentions it, because he has to mention it here, so we'll know about it, right? The Holy Spirit is good to us that way. But he assumes that the end-time church will know about this prophecy, so he just mentions it like yeah, you know about that, right? It's like Enoch, the seventh from Adam. This is, though, is a, he's referencing a pre-flood prophecy that would have been 3,400 years old at that point, ballpark. When Jude is writing about this prophecy that he assumes you know about, it's already 3,400 years old. Man, they knew their stuff, church. I don't think that the church at large comprehends the magnitude of what we are witnessing in the world right now. I really don't. I mean, we look at the news and everything that's happening in the world, and maybe we'll get some, have some time to get to that before we close. But church, if this is it, if we are witnessing the end time scenario right now, if this is it, if we are the church that Jude is writing to, this goes all the way back to the beginning. Let me just give you a snapshot of the pre-flood world. Can I, can I see this next graphic? And hopefully you'll be able to see this. Yeah, you can see that. You see that top pink one, that's Adam. Adam, he lived 930 years. Then you have Seth, Enosh, Canaan. You see all of the, the lineage. I wanted to point something out to you guys. Look at Noah. You see Noah, he's yellow in the middle there. Go back up a little bit. There's Enoch. He's in green. Do you see him, Enoch? Boy, he didn't live as long as everybody else, did he? Only 365 years. Bummer. Such a short life. So short. Enoch, but look at this. With Adam living 930 years, this is just in your Bible. It tells you how old they were when they had children, and if you just do the math, and if anybody wants this graphic, email me. I'll send it to you. It's a pretty cool study. But Enoch was alive while Adam was alive. How cool is that? Do you see these lifespans? You know, there's, there's no reason for us to think that they're not real. There's no, that, that they did, that they, there's no reason for us to think that they didn't really live as long as the Bible says that they lived. But I want you to notice something there. After the flood, do you see Noah's lifespan? It says flood. After the flood, do you see what happens to the length of life? It nosedives, doesn't it? Something happened that, ch- that changed environmentally with the flood. Something happened, and that's a really cool study as well. You know, many great scholars believe that there was a shield of ice around the world, and God just melted it. And that would have changed the atmosphere. It would have changed the oxygen levels that, are, that there are, and if there's a, a higher oxygen level, it increases cellular lifespan and all that stuff. There's some really cool creation science behind that stuff. I encourage you guys to look into it, okay? Um, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Kent Hovind who has done incredible work on that. So look him up. But look at this, though. You see Enoch, seventh from Adam. He would have known Adam. And look at this also, side note. Abraham, Abraham, 
would have known Noah. Isn't that just wild to think about? Because as we read our Bibles, we read about all of these different pre-flood characters, and you just assume, well, his, by, the time his, by the time his grandfather, you know, he was a great-grandpa, he probably would have... No, I mean, they knew, their, they knew their, not only their grandparents, but their great-grandparents and their great-great-grandparents. They knew them all, right? Um, <clears throat> so interesting. Inter- also interesting point on this chart, and then I'll leave it alone. Interesting that Abraham was born in the year from creation, 1948. Does anybody know what year the third prophesied kingdom of Israel was reborn? 1948. Weird. Hmm. But this prophecy, guys, uh, this prophecy from Enoch, it goes way back. So why does Jude and or the Holy Spirit bring up Enoch? Well, Timeline-wise, it makes sense, right? It makes sense uh, uh, the second, if it's of, the, it's of the second coming, right, timeline-wise, but I think it's more than that. I think that, I think, church, that we are witnessing the same godless depravity in the world today that Enoch did before the flood. Now, maybe we don't see it necessarily on our morning commute but I'm telling you, church, the wickedness that has grown and increased in this world. Let's just, uh, can I, I'll say one thing and you'll know what I'm talking about. Human trafficking. Oh, church. I think that we are witnessing the same godless depravity in the world today that they were back then. Uh, take a, one, one more look on this chart. <clears throat> you see Enosh, the third guy down, the third from Adam, Enosh. Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Just let me read this. As for Seth, as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. <clears throat> this is going to make my point for me here. He named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Nothing wrong with that, right? Except this is slightly mistranslated, this scripture. It means in Hebrew to call something by the name of the Lord. In other words, to call something else the name of the Lord. Actually, maybe it's not just a little mistranslation. It might be a big one. To call something else by the name of the Lord. The proper translation would be they began to profane the name of the Lord. That's the opposite of what it says. And that didn't take long is what I want to point out. The third from Adam, that's all it took? Adam's his grandpa. What in the world is going on? It makes me think of the old adage that the first generation makes the fortune. Have you heard this one before? The first generation makes the fortune. The second generation spends it. And the third generation loses it because they didn't know how to make it in the first place. They called on the name of the Lord. Can I see this next graphic? Interesting point on this. I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but Targum of Onkelos, Onkelos, Targum of Onkelos, ancient, uh, uh, ancient writer, wrote that they did, from the generation of Enoch, they desisted from praying in the name. They stopped praying in the name of the Lord. Targum of Jonathan said, they surnamed their idols, their false god idols. They started to surname them in the name of Jehovah. 
Kimshi, Rashi, and other Jewish commentators agree with this, and Jerome indicated that in his day, this was the common belief among everybody. And lastly, Maimonides, his commentary on the Mishnah, which is actually part of the Talmud and dates to 1168 AD, he ascribes the origin of all idolatry to Enosh and the worship of the fallen angels that we see in Genesis chapter 6. Those fallen angels, his generation, they began to worship these fallen angels that decided they wanted to be God and they wanted to be worshipped by God. So all of that stuff, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Fascinating stuff. If you missed it, I encourage you to look it up. But there's four words for man throughout Hebrew. Throughout the Old Testament, there's four different words that uh, are used for man in the Hebrew. The first, we have this graphic. The first is Adam. It simply means this, origin, dust of the ground. And then ish, if you're learning Hebrew, Amber and I tried to learn Hebrew for about two weeks a few years ago. I think we learned how to say man, woman, uh, ish, isha, isha ratza, woman runs, right? And sandwich. <laughs> it means sandwich. <laughs> and, and dog means fish. That was just too confusing for the kids. We had to give it a break after that. It just means biologically male. <clears throat> that is a, still a thing, by the way. Geber means strength, mighty man. I decided last night that I'm going to start calling Gib Geber. Geber. Nice. The Geber. <laughs> and lastly, Enosh. What a legacy this guy's got. His name actually means infirmities because of this. Infirmities. According to the Hebrew culture, to call a man Enosh is another word for man. It means infirmities, infirmity, immoral character, an incurable loser. I'm not even making that up. And it's used 500 different times in the Old Testament. Oh, church, the days were dark before the flood. They were dark. As in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. I don't think our culture can comprehend what this scripture means. I really don't. But Jude assumed you would. He assumed you would. Genesis chapter 5, let's jump over there briefly. Genesis chapter 5, verse 21 through 24 reads, Enoch lived six lived 65 years, and then he begot Methuselah. Verse 22. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Verse 22. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You might be thinking, what is that supposed to mean? God took him. Well, we have some clarity. Thanks to the author of Hebrews, I think it's Paul, but maybe not. <clears throat> Hebrews 11, verse 5 through 6 reads, verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Oh, let that be said of us. Amen? Verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. You want to please him? Here's the key. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Mm. It's like we talked about a few weeks ago. I brought a chair up on stage, right? I said, I believe that, you know, chair will hold me, but until I actually try to sit in it, I'm not putting any faith in it, right? Mm. Weren't we just talking about last week about how the gospel of salvation through Jesus, was, Jesus Christ was declared even from the beginning? all the way back even in Genesis chapter 3, even before that? I thought so. Now, two people, interestingly enough, did not see death in the Old Testament. Two. And we talked about this briefly on Wednesday night's uh, study in Revelation, but two people. One was Elijah and the other was Enoch. And guess what? Both of them ministered in times of apostasy. That's why it's incredibly relevant that Jude would bring up somebody like Enoch. And he's bringing our mind back into the days of Noah, the mind that is not otherwise in the days of Noah, okay? Enoch, can I see this next graphic? A few, a few things about Enoch. Enoch walked with God by faith, according to Hebrews 11.5. This was not a casual stroll, church. Casual stroll with God is pretty popular in the church today. For 300 years, that walk involved several different things. There had to be an agreement between them. You know, when we're walking with the Lord, we have to be in agreement in the Spirit with Him, or we're, or we're walking our own way, aren't we? I think a lot of times, even today, Christians will feel the Holy Spirit prick them, and the whole, that's God not agreeing with you, but you still go your own way anyhow, Right? And we hope God will come along. That's not how it works, guys. Enoch had to surrender to God every day. That leads to a witness down through the millennia of time, which is what he has. But guess what? The privilege of having that relationship with God that Enoch had is available to you today. It's still available. Second, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Galatians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. They all read. I think I put this on one screen for you guys. We have the next tile. I think they all read here. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk with him, church. Walk with him. Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul tells us, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Amen, church? I believe that Enoch was a foreshadowing, he was foreshadowing a type of the rapture, the rapture of the church, the catching away, the harpazo. Interesting side note about Enoch is that he was born on Pentecost and he was raptured on Pentecost. Hmm. When's Pentecost? I don't know. Enoch's first prophecy, though, his first prophecy, it does not come to us in Jude, but it comes to us. I can't move on from Enoch without talking about this. His, the first prophecy comes to us in the naming of his son. Did you know that? His first prophecy comes to us in the naming of his son. What was his son's name? If you remembered the chart, it was Methuselah, right? Can I see this graphic on Methuselah? 
The first part of that of his name means muth. It means to die. It's used 125 different times in the Old Testament. It's used eight different times, just in Genesis chapter 5. Muth means to die in the Hebrew. Shalek means to send forth, and it's used 60 times in, in referencing the sending of judgment on earth, the send forth, the plagues of Egypt, the famine, fire, pestilence of the prophets. In other words, his death shall bring is what his name means, Methuselah. Or it could be said, when he dies, it shall be sent. Quite a name, huh? When he dies, it shall be sent within the context of judgment upon the earth. My goodness, can you imagine being his parents for a moment? I mean, I've got four kids and we've had some scares over the years, you know what I'm saying? Falling out of trees and falling off monkey bars and broken arms and stuff like that, right? Can you imagine being his parents every time the kid fell on his bike? He'd be like, oh my gosh, are you okay? <laughs> this is serious, is it? This isn't life-threatening, is it? I'm sure the whole community had a vested interest in keeping this kid well, right? I mean, his death will bring judgment on the earth for crying out loud. Good grief. But really... What's so, cool, what's so cool about this is that Methuselah is a beautiful picture and model for us of God's grace. Do you know how? He was the oldest man in the Bible. So the prophecy was that Enoch gave us through the naming of his son is that when Methuselah dies, the judgment will come. So God saw to it that he was the oldest man in the history of the earth. It is a picture. It is a picture of grace. You may ask, how long, O Lord, will you tolerate such wickedness in the world? <clears throat> the answer is, until the last one has come home, church. Until the last one has come home. He is not slack in keeping his promises. He just loves much. He just loves much, church. And he would have it that none be lost. But to really get it, this prophecy of Methuselah, to really get it, we've got to see it in the context of his lineage. You know, we name our kids now, and a lot of, a lot of times in our culture, we just name somebody because it's a cool name you heard. You might not even know what it means. But back then, you didn't name a kid if, unless you knew what their name meant because it was speaking a blessing over their life, right? You name somebody in, order, in, in accordance with what they were going to do or you hoped they would do or whatnot. Names truly meant something. So I already read you what the name of Adam means, right? All these names have different meanings. Can I see this next graphic? Here's a, this comes to us in Genesis chapter 5. <clears throat> in the Hebrew, we see the names, the, the first all the way up to Noah, you see Methuselah there? His death will bring, right? Look at Methuselah's prophetic name in context of all of the other names of his grandparents and his children. Man, placed, appointed, is Seth. Enosh meant mortal, and boy was he, right? He brought idolatry into the world. Sorrow, Canaan. Mahalel means blessed God. Jared means shall come down. And Enoch meant teaching. It means anointed. Uh, Methuselah then, of course, his death will bring. Lamech, his son, he named him despairing. What in the world? 
And then Noah simply meant rest and comfort. Can I see the next graphic? Let's put it all together, shall we? Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. How cool is that, huh? Is God good or is God good? Has he brought you rest today, church? Do you feel the rest of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Is it in your life? Is it in your home? It can be. He leads us by by, uh, peaceful waters. Amen? Didn't we just read that? Do you see the fingerprints of God in his word yet? I promised you you'd see him today, didn't I? Do you feel his love for you? Do you see the lengths that he has gone to to reveal himself to you? Oh, church, how he loves you. How he loves you. You know, many in this context of Noah and pre-flood everything, Enoch, many see the uh, ark, Noah's ark, as a type of the rapture. And I get it, you know. uh, In Genesis chapter 7, verse 4, reads that in seven days I will cause it to rain. And if you think about, well, you know, seven-year tribulation at the end, in the end times, right? The time of Jacob's trouble where God will deal with Israel for seven years, right? Well, seven days before that, it started to rain, right? You see type and shadows. I get that, you know. But really, what, what the ark did through the flood church is that it preserved them, these eight... Pure, blood, pure line of the Messiah, bloodline of the Messiah people, the ark preserved them through the judgment. It preserved them through the judgment, which really speaks to me as to what God will do th- with Israel through the tribulation. Me personally, in, this, in, in looking into Enoch, I see Enoch as a type for us, a type of that rapture, especially because he wasn't Jewish. They weren't even Jews yet at that point, right? It wasn't about a promise that God was was, uh, obligated to keep. It wasn't about a promise that God was obligated to keep with Enoch. It was about faith. It's about faith. Understanding understanding this... uh, Understanding this, all of this is what scholars a lot smarter than me uh, refer to as an Enochian worldview. Understanding the pre-flood world and what God did and all of this, and it gives such more credence to the prophecy that came out that we have now for this church today. But this Enochian worldview, all of the apostles had it. The first church had it, and they understood all of it, and guess what? Jude assumed you would too. And now you do, right? So mission accomplished. Or did I just totally blow it today and you're like, what is he even talking about? There's always that possibility. One more thing, though, on verse 14 I want to share with you guys, okay? Uh, Let's read verse 14 again. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these things 
saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. I hate to tell you guys this, but we have another mistranslation here on that word saints. Saints is actually uh, properly translated into the word myriads. Myriads. It doesn't just mean saints, all right? I'm going to get you guys excited this morning before you go, all right? Can I see that definition of myriads, that next graphic? What does is, what is myriads mean? It means this. It's, it is found in other passages throughout the Bible, in Zechariah 14, Revelation 19, Daniel chapter 7. Moses references tens of thousands of holy ones, myriads of holy ones in Deuteronomy 33.2. It's angels. It's angels, according to Acts chapter 7 and Galatians chapter 3. At Jesus' return, Matthew chapter 25 tells us that all of the holy angels will come with him. It's not just saints. It's the whole gang. <laughs> We're getting the band back together, guys. Come on. Because we know believers are coming. Look at Colossians 3, verse 4, and Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 13. Believers are coming. Actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 through 3 tells us that we will judge angels. Wow. You're special. You're special. Interesting thing about this, though. So if we are coming, if the myriads are coming in this prophecy, are you, are you getting this? Behold, Enoch is prophesying, prophesying from way back then in a pre-flood world. He's prophesying that, behold, the Lord cometh with thousands of his saints, all of them, his myriads, angels, and believers alike. Well, guess what? We have to be there first if we're going to come here then, don't we? And that is at the end of the tribulation period when he brings the whole gang down. So that's good news. If you were a you know, post-trib rapture guy or mid-trib rapture guy, this is good news. We got to be there before we come back with him, don't we? Mm-mm-mm. And why do we come? Or rather, why does he come and we get to tag along? Why does that happen? Well, verse 15, Jude 15, to execute judgment upon all. I'm telling you, if you're one of those who are sitting back thinking, how long, O oh Lord, will these human traffickers prosper? How long will the wicked prosper? Here it comes. When he comes, he's coming to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches. Anybody else tired of being treated rudely by ungodly people at the doctor's office or at the gas station? Or I don't, maybe it's just me, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's just us, but man, Amber and I, we get it with both barrels all the time, it seems like which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You think he made that point well enough, that they're ungodly? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Okay, they're ungodly. And he's coming. He's coming, church. Verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speak, speaketh, Great swelling words. 
These are the people, remember 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapter 13 talks of these same group of people. They speak swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. In other words, they're in the, and they're in the church. They've, these are, Paul, or Jude says these people have crept in among you. That's what the whole letter is about, is the warning. Look out. Why? Because, because why? Well, how do we recognize an apostate? La, uh, one more graphic. Well, maybe two. One more anyway. Let's try this one. How do, you, how do you recognize an apostate? This is the recognition of an apostate. The signs that he opened the epistle with, that Jude opened the epistle with, are summarized into everyday terms for us. Murmurer. Do you remember the murmurers in the wilderness with Israel? This is not a sin of minor importance, guys. It's referenced in John 6, uh, uh, verse 41 and 61. It's referenced in Ephesians 2, verse 2 and 3. It's the hallmark of an apostate. Murmuring. The hallmark of an apostate. They're complainers. Remember the angels that we, a few weeks ago, we talked about the, the angels. They were dissatisfied with their assigned place. God, God put them in a place for a purpose and for a reason, and they don't like that place. They want to be somewhere else. They want to do something else. So they complain about it. They complain. They walk after their own lusts. We studied that with Sodom and Gomorrah. They're finding, find, uh, fault finding may be, uh, Fault finding may mark a professing Christian as one who has turned his back on the truth. Let that sink in. It's not a sin of minor importance, church. Remember, they will profess to be Christians. Complainers may be apostates, according to Jude 8 through 10, 2 Corinthians 11, 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 11. They displeased the Lord in the days of Moses, Numbers 11. They displeased the Lord in Mark chapter 7. Now contrast that with Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul tells us, whatsoever state we are in, we should be content. That'll preach. And lastly, they seek the approval of man. They just want approval, they want praise, they want to be lifted up, and they want to take advantage of reputation among us. Am I preaching to you yet? Church. Are you this church that Jude is writing to? Are you this church that Jude is writing to? There is a lot happening in the world today that makes me think that maybe we are. And I see this last graphic, one headline. We had talked about this last week briefly. I mentioned Chrislam, right? Well, I don't know if you guys know this, but last Sunday at 10 a.m., the Jewish people around the world, they had, an, they had organized to cry out at 10 a.m. our time, 6 o'clock their time, to cry out for their Messiah to come. Every nation around the globe, the Jews were crying out for their Messiah. They, they all said the same blessing, the same prayer, asking for the Messiah to come. That would be beautiful, except the fact is, is that the Messiah has come, and they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, so they're not expecting Yeshua HaMashiach to come. They're waiting for a man who will give them their temple. They're crying out for the Antichrist to come right now, one week ago. And guess what? One week later, the Pope 
is getting together with the, the whole band. They're going to they're gonna join all together for a prayer meeting and conference. The heads of Islam, Judaism, and the Catholic Church will be meeting at the birthplace of Abraham today. The birthplace of Abraham, the Ur of the Chaldeans, for their one world religion. I don't know if you guys have read Revelation 13. We're going to be we're studying Revelation, so we'll get there. We'll get there. I think we're in chapter. Where chapter are we in? Eleven. I don't even know anymore. But on Wednesday nights, we'll get to thirteen soon. That's right. Revelation twelve is this week. Guys, guys, guys. A one-world religion is coming. A one-world government will be upon this earth. A one-world currency will be used. <laughs> On this planet, what do we see? We see a monetary great reset being pushed forward, shoved into existence right now. That's one world currency. That's one world government in, in, in unity with the UN. And at the same time, we see the US has decided to go back to war, striking Iran this week, which is nothing but a foreshadowing of the Ezekiel 38-39 war, which we've got all of the nations of that prophecy aligned together against Israel for the first time in history. I think we're that church. And if we are, we should take Jude's warning seriously. And we should, as Enoch did, walk with the Lord by faith. Amen? Amen. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I'll invite Leith forward. If you're here this morning and the Lord is moving on your heart. It could be in any way. The Holy Spirit's so good, it might not even have anything to do with the message I just preached. (laughs) He's that good. But if the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart this morning, and maybe it's the, uh, the understanding that Jesus is coming for his bride, could be so close, church. Are you walking with him? Are you walking with him by faith? What Enoch had with God was so special. It's available to you. It is available to you. The Lord is putting something on your heart. I want you to bring it to his throne. I want you to lay it down at his feet. I want you to visualize that in your mind this morning. Whatever it is, whether it's burden, worry, lifestyle, or just a desire to walk deeper with Him. Walk closer with Him. A closer walk with Thee, the old song says. Whatever it is, church, I just implore you, nobody's looking around. This is between the Lord, you, and your pastor, so I can pray for you. Raise your hand. You can put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God, you're so good. And thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. If you're here or you're watching this on the live stream right now and you want to recommit your heart to the Lord or maybe for the first time, truly put your faith and trust in him for your salvation, just raise your hand right now. Thank you. Thank you. Put it right back down. The angels throw a party every time that happens and it just happened. God is so good. 
Send us a message if that's you watching online. Church, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you, thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word, God, and the lengths that you have gone to to reveal your heart to us, Lord. A heart that loves and that is long-suffering with us. And thank, thank you, Lord, that you are long-suffering with us because I know I need it. Oh, Lord, receive your people. Receive their hearts as they bring them to you and they lay them down at your feet and they say, have your way and they surrender their lives and they surrender their will to you, Lord Jesus. Refresh us, Holy Spirit. Renew us and let us walk out of here today with our heads held high, hearts full of love and excitement for the days that we're in and the days ahead and the coming of you, Lord Jesus, in the clouds. And you're bringing us there to meet you. Lord, give us the words to speak to our loved ones, God. That we would effectively and accurately portray the gospel to them and live the gospel before them, Lord. Now, if you rose your hand for that prayer of recommittal or first-time salvation, you're at home watching this and that's you I want you to say it out loud right where you are there's something about just doing something physically that affects us spiritually as well we are not just spirit we are flesh and not just flesh we are spirit so say this prayer together as one body church say Jesus I believe that you're God I believe that you love me I believe you died on the cross for my sin I believe you rose from the grave on the third day. I believe you're coming for me one day. Come into my heart and make me new. Walk with me all the days of my life. And help me walk closer with you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he go before you. May he pour favor out on your lives. And may you prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We love you guys. Thank you.